Uh, hey, this is Joe Holt on the uh, Toddcast, right, with Todd Anderson. Hey, hey Joe. So, uh, Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you for having me have you on my show, which is <laughs> so your confusing. show. It's, it it's really, very meta. It it's really, very meta. It's super meta. Uh, so simple and yet so confusing, which uh, really describes my entire existence. Or maybe just me. I'm simple yet confusing. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree with you at all. Well, already we're off I on the right start. I think you're uh, very clear when you speak, and you don't seem uh, confused. You're certainly not confusing. Well, then I'm. I don't know where you get that then insecurity. I, then That's I'm weird. duplicitous beyond uh, understanding. I've got you all fooled. <laughs> well, good for you. <laughs> Have you considered politics? I've considered sociopathy. I think that it's a field that, that I might do really well in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think so. It, it seems that uh, there's a place for me there. Uh, but but enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? Um, I think. Well, I had I have questions for you. I, I mean, you're this, you're an actor, a great actor that I have worked with in the past. How's this? Uh, how's this COVID treating your brain uh, with the acting profession? You know, uh, there are parts of this that are simply extensions of what we do. Obviously, right? Like there's the the uncertainty, the uh, the sort of staying in your home in Los Angeles. I mean, it hasn't fundamentally altered my behavior. Um, but I think having no outlets, uh, and even more so having no opportunities, right? Like as, as, as actors, we could probably count on, you know, depending on the month, three to eight times, you know, we were going to be in some room looking for work. And right. we were going to get a job one of those 20 times um, or one of those five if we're rolling, but probably one of those 20 times, <laughs> right. you know. And, and so there was at least some notion of, oh, there's something on the horizon, right? right. There, there's, there's some possibility of something on the horizon. So the most difficult part of this has obviously been um, not having the possibility of something on the horizon, even as someone that has the possibility of something on the horizon with the walking dead show, um, sort of systematically watching every one of the markers that I was looking forward to fall by the wayside. That's been, uh, that's been difficult to handle. What about you? So though? You, you know, I you, mean, it's the, the, the walking dead show is called what the walking dead. It's a uh, new spinoff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The walking dead world beyond. Are there such things as old spinoffs? <laughs> These days, yeah, sure. It's it's the most recent spinoff. <laughs> yeah. We're, what was well, the, if, it, if you reboot a spinoff, an old spinoff, like if they rebooted the Tortellis, the Cheers spinoff. If they rebooted Joni, would, Joni loves Chachi. It would kind of be an old spinoff. That you know? would be an old spinoff, or would it be a re a reboot of an old? This, let's, let's just talk about know. this for an hour because I think this is the most <laughs> compelling thing we've touched on. How to properly, uh, how, what, what's the proper terminology to describe awful, awful television? Um, but mine is not going to be awful television. So what mine is, Walking Dead World Beyond, is the second spinoff from The Walking Dead. Um, 
and we finished, uh, we wrapped shooting in December. And uh, the plan was for our show to air April 12th. Uh, and then we were going to be back to work at some point in July on season two. So uh, I do think it was a wise decision not to release uh, our show that is ostensibly about the walking dead at a time uh-huh. when America was dealing with <laughs> its own walking oh dead. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, but then I was, I think we were all, I think in March, if you had asked all of us, we would have thought by mid-June, we'll have a hold on it, right? Mm. I would have thought that by mid-June, we'd start seeing some return to normalcy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not uh, properly anticipating how unwilling we are to abide by science. Um, it's a real, it's a real curveball, isn't it? <laughs> you know, anytime you start betting on common sense, you should you, you should have a friend say, "Hey, could you come over for a minute? I'm betting on common sense." And the friend comes over and just hits you as hard as they can in the mouth and tells yeah. you, "That's what you get for betting on common sense." You're like, "Oh God, I forgot. Thanks for reminding me." I always say I I feel like my ideal political party would be called the party of reason. Yes. And the you know, party of reason somehow would be taken over by Christian fundamentalists. It would devolve. <laughs> yeah, devolve. Of course it would. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, when was the age of reason? Wasn't there an age of reason? Was that what, the, the 1500s, 1600s? When was the age of reason? <laughs> That's too far. Whenever far it was, on. some crazy unreasonable shit was going on during the age That's of true. reason. They, they are good at rebranding shit like that. <laughs> That's right. Got to be really careful. Yeah, there were some, yeah. somebody was getting burned at a stake for something during the age of reason. <laughs> I'm sure. To prove something. So maybe, maybe, maybe that's not our best option. Yeah, um, but it's, it's been a struggle, true. man. And, you know, part of the struggle is for those of us that make the mistake of being on social media, uh, you know, social media is just this sort of dumping ground for everything awful about us uh, Mm. with occasionally lucid moments and occasional news that, that is actually hopeful. But a lot of it is, you know, Hey, look at this thing that I'm shooting. Like I'm doing great during the pandemic. And I really feel like with actors, it's a, it's a conundrum. It's definitely a conundrum because while an, at one time you you have to self promote. Um, mm-hmm. There's a fine line between uh, exhibitionism and self promotion, and there's a fine line between narcissism and self promotion, and there's you know a fine line between um, just the the clear and blatant need for validation that you have mm-hmm. from your need to tell the world here's what I'm doing, and. You know, and we're we're in a we're in a city that is run by lots of toxic forces. If if we're candid about it, and I think people don't feel comfortable uh, talking about those toxic forces in public forums or public fora, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is actually mm-hmm. correct, isn't it? Um, in public fora, uh, you know, because everybody's <laughs> afraid of not seeming like they're bright, happy people that can sell uh, Folgers. You know, right. and, and nobody wants to say anything that's going to brand them the wrong way. Meanwhile, everybody's going back to their apartment and putting their head in their pillow and crying or taking their antidepressant or, you know, drinking that extra bottle. Like people are doing that stuff. And I feel like if we'd be more uh, transparent about that realness, there's a lot of pain. 
Yeah. Uh, the way that I've, re- but the way that I felt from the beginning of this, I was in the middle of a play. The play got canceled, which I thought was the right decision, obviously. And as soon as I started finding myself feeling like, oh man, as soon as you get your opportunity, this comes along, I was actually overwhelmed with a feeling of gratitude, legitimately, because if I hadn't gotten this show in the fall, right now I'd be in grad school at USD. Uh, zooming classes in mm-hmm. debt, not at all mm-hmm. experiencing what I had hoped to experience at grad school. Instead, I got this great gift in the fall, which I think was merited, but also fortunate. Like our, our, our jobs are a combination of both. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it gave me some resources to be able to weather this better than most people can. So I'm very careful about bemoaning my fate while at the same time, I'm trying to acknowledge that it's hard. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm better off than most. I'm more fortunate than most. And this fucking sucks. Uh, so all those things are true. What about you? You have a family. You're in my business. You know, it's, it's already catch as catch can. How have you been handling it? Um, all right. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I, 2019 was not a great year uh, for me. It was pretty slow. I mean, I was coming off of you know, five years recurring on, on you're the worst. Yep. So, you know, it was kind of a, it was kind of a, a rude awakening, old Hollywood story, but a rude awakening, like, Oh, Oh, I'm not as popular as I felt like I was. <laughs> I, I haven't made it. <laughs> no, no. Uh, so I, <laughs> I, uh, was already in this place of weathering, uh, and, and but there's always that hope, for the future, yeah, like that you're talking about, you know, going out in auditions and trying to get the job and trying to write stuff and trying to make podcasts and video shows and all that stuff, and uh, and uh, I, I mean, I was already, I guess this the 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 pandemic made it worse because it felt like even that, you know, I'm I'm clawing my way back up feeling it was also put on hold, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. It, it, any, any sort of re effort to re-energize or, okay, we've had this dip. Now let's, let's do the Rocky theme song and, you know, and go do sit-ups in right. our basement and, and get, it's going to be, it's spring, right? It's pilot season. And there's always the possibility. You're a guy who's worked, you've worked consistently for 20 years, Right. I would Pretty say much, yeah. maybe, yeah, you and I probably have similar trajectories in that we've always, not always, but for probably 20 years, we've made a living at this, I would say, um, although neither of us have reached stardom or really celebrity status, we're probably more successful than 95% of people pursuing acting. That's probably statistically true. That is true. But it's so often it doesn't, doesn't feel it like doesn't that. feel like that because you <laughs> I would guess that in the past 20 years you've never known what your income was going to be in the coming year no 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 yeah and you've yeah. had you've had some six-figure years but you didn't sure. know they were going to be six-figure years so it makes it hard to plan yeah and so often when those happen I'm like it, it's not till tax time that I realize oh <laughs> Had a good year, right? Jesus, right? Why didn't I do what did something I do smart? With, what did I do with all of that money? But I guess, like, when I do have good years, then you know, you you have enough money to get into the housing market, which I did, you know, fourteen years ago, fifteen years ago, uh, fourteen years ago, 
and uh, and have since moved to a second home. So I've done some stuff with my money, but it, th- but then as soon as I do these things, I make these big life changes and buy a house, and then that, that immediately I become terrified that I'm not going to work. And right. then you know, and we bought this house, and then 2019 happened, and I was like, oh Jesus! Like as soon as I you know yeah. you get you get house poor when you buy a house, right? Right. It's like I'm house poor and just getting house poorer. Yeah. And then and then last year we were hit with. Uh, you know, on top of me not getting enough work, we got hit with like a plumbing crisis in the house. We, you know, had to tear up the house, and right. that's expensive and stressful and horrifying. And didn't know how you know we were going to pay. I'm still paying it off at this point. It's just the, the unintended consequences of doing the right and smart thing when you have some income, right? I mean, anybody that I've spoken to that is a homeowner has these stories where. You just don't, again, you, you don't know. It's, it's more uncertainty. It's a hat on a hat. Now you have this level of uncertainty on top of your other uncertainty. I had a great year. Can I have it again? You know, <laughs> yeah. you, you've gone from whatever, 130 to 50 without, without doing anything differently. Without, it's not complacency. It's for 90, for, for most of the folks that are pursuing this, there's no way to ensure your income. There's no way yeah. to guarantee a good a good year, and um, you know, and and you're a talented guy and a smart guy. Not only are you a talented and a smart guy, you produce, you make your own work. You've been consistent doing that, which I've always been impressed with and I've always admired. Um, and uh, I collaborated with you very briefly, and hopefully we'll collaborate some more. Um, when when was the were you making stuff when you were in college? What 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 began your uh, your sort of career is being a self-producer. Um, you know, I well, I mean, I I got involved in in plays. I mean, really, it was freshman year at NYU because you're not allowed to act except in class. Mm. Um, and and because I had dabbled in it in high school, I started dabbling in stand-up. Yep. So that was like the easiest thing for me to dabble in to get away with it so I could get stage time and not get in trouble with NYU or whatever. Right. And, and it forced me to create my own stuff. Now, it was it was 1990 uh, in New York, stand-up comedy was, it was a rough... It was a rough scene. It was... And it was like, I went from Boston... Or, or Cambridge, where I did most of my stand-up, like with co- these college crowds in the Boston and Cambridge areas, are very warm yeah. and uh, and ready to laugh, and 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 they like you know goofier stuff. That's maybe. also uh, 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 people might not know, but that's a pretty that's a hotbed for talent at that time, right? Uh, the Boston area. What, that, yeah, sure. Yeah. Like what Dennis Leary and Stephen Wright wasn't there a whole. From like yeah, eighty to ninety, like, that was more eighties. That was I sort suppose. of that was the eighties, and that like ninety was when the like stand up comedy boom was really kind of crashing. Gotcha. Um, and there were a lot of cool people. Like in eighty nine, I get well, I guess it was early in nineteen ninety when I first did stand up in when I was a senior in high school, and like the people who were there at the club that I did, which is Catch a Rising Star in Harvard Square. It was uh, David Cross was one of the, oh, yeah. the the comics that was there. And he had like a sketch show, like there was an open mic and he had his own sketch show, late night sketch show after the open mic. So I got to meet him and he was, he was I mean, the comics could be pretty mean uh, sure. in Boston as well. Uh, they, they, you know, they get aggravated when like a kid is there too. It's a pretty bitter hot. business, right? I mean, it's a bit, it's yeah, a pretty yeah. cutthroat 
uh, business that people wouldn't think of because they see smiley, happy people on the stage saying amazingly funny things. But there's a lot of dark in that world, yeah? Yeah, for sure. And it, and and the the darkness of it at that time was was big. And then going from Boston to New York, because it was even darker in New York. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> I can't imagine. So when were you? I was in New York from 93 to 2005. When were you there? I was there uh, uh, 1990 to 94. Okay, so we just missed each other. Yeah. Are we the same uh, age? I, I'm I 50. I think so. I'm, I'm 48. Okay, so I'm two years older than you. Okay. But you were you did you go to grad school? No, I never went to school for this. Um, oh, oh, okay. I went to school at Chapel Hill. I got my degree in literature. I worked for a year to save money down in North Carolina, and then I moved to New York in '93. And I just oh, so you you moved to New York to just hit the stage? Yeah, I moved to New York to figure out what I was doing. I knew nothing about this stuff. I had done a few plays in college. I went into college to become a business major. Um, or I went to college as a business major to become a corporate lawyer and realized after uh, a year or two that I had no idea why I was doing this, uh, and <laughs> which was uh, uh, that a decision was facilitated by taking a statistics class and a microeconomics class and thinking, what are you doing? <laughs> no interest in this at all. Um, now, did you, did you, were you acting growing up? And, and not no, at all? No, not at all. I was, uh, there were the two concentrations in my life growing up were academics and sports. And, oh, wow. you know, my dad's a military officer. There was no room for nonsense, uh, uh, <laughs> particularly uh, an African American military officer. It's like, I'm going to be an actor. No, you're not. <laughs> Jesus. It, it was the doctor or lawyer train from like six years old. Um, and but did you, I mean, were you, were you a kid who liked the movies or TV oh, shows? Yeah. Oh, or? absolutely. I, I had my eye on it from an early age. I, I was heavily influenced, am heavily influenced by the 70s films. Uh, Pacino, De Niro, Duvall, Streep, John Cazale, like The Godfather and The Deer Hunter were, were inspirational at a young age. I, I, was, uh, I was hungry for that work and those films it just wasn't a realistic thing to talk about being an actor. Um, right. But without a doubt, uh, that that sort of golden age of cinema, um, that independent film era that came out of the, the 60s and out of the Vietnam War and that gritty realism, Hal Ashby, all, all that kind of stuff coming home, that was the stuff that influenced me. And I watched it, and I... And I think that having been raised in a serious house by a serious guy drew me to these serious people in these serious movies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And uh, and also, you know, there was just a level of craft and truth uh, that existed in in that era of movie making. So I always had it in the back of my mind even more so I always had it sort of in my my being and I was a cut up in school I was the kid that would get A's and then be sent to the office you uh-huh. know because you were were you just a wise ass I was a I was a wise ass uh you know if you're smart and you're in third grade there's just a world of trouble to get into you <laughs> sure. know you're, you're they hand you those multiplication tables you're done in two minutes you know other people yeah. are like struggling you're looking around trying to find some action you know like who, who's the cute girl there's a joke somewhere to do and 
And I, I you know, and I was raised on Monty Python, you know, and, and Benny Hill and, and, and Bugs Bunny, right? Like those are the bases for comedy. So there's all kinds of joy to have. Right. Uh, so yeah, I was always in some way, uh, not a kid that was on stage, but a kid that was holding court and doing mm-hmm. accents and being funny and, and having, you know, I was always that kid, but I had to balance it by being a very serious student. And, and my dad also was very wary of being seen as the clown, right? Like as a, as a black kid and as a black man who had gone through what he had gone through and who had a, a pretty, had a post that had a lot of authority to it and, and, and dignity and pressure. Uh, he was very wary about that, you know, and I was worried about that too. Uh, which to some degree might have hindered me from pursuing anything comedic because I didn't right. want to be taken lightly uh, as a black mm. as a black man. Uh, but ultimately, I feel like I've ended up where I'm supposed to end up with that. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, to answer the question, I did not plan on being an actor, although I think I always had my eye on it from a young age. And then when I got to college, I was pursuing this degree in business and... I went and saw an amazing play, The Nutcracker, uh, at our th- it, uh, Chapel Hill has a pretty good regional theater, and the woman in it was mesmerizing. Uh, her name was Susanna Reinhardt. She played Mouse Rinks, you know, this mystical character that plays one person in the real world and one person in the fairy world. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching her, and it you talk about inspiration. I I, I felt like there were, I had like this catharsis of like I've got to go to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I sought her out and took a class of hers that was just sort of an intro to acting class. And it was mainly historical and, and dealing with um, sort of the, the different stages, you know, the goat plays and the Renaissance. And it was more of a, it wasn't about acting. It was about the history. And after that, um, she said she was teaching an intro to acting class in the summer. And I so badly, it was one of those things where I wanted to be around her. And it wasn't just a crush. It wasn't like that, really. I was mesmerized by her more than anything else. Something about her personality or her love of the craft or her love of teaching, it was infectious. Mm -hmm. So I decided I was going to switch majors, take two sessions of summer school, take her intro to acting class, and sort of throw caution to the wind. Um... And I, I happened to have a four-year scholarship to, to Chapel Hill, uh, so I could kind of make that decision. And my dad wasn't thrilled with it, but he, but you know, but he didn't stop it. And um, and and I had my first play that summer, uh, "The Women of Manhattan," ironically enough, by John Patrick Shanley, uh, <laughs> since everybody's first play has to be John Patrick Shanley. Yeah, it has to be. You can't <laughs> not start. You, which... know, you can't start on Mammoth. Like, nah, Mammoth's your second play. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta do Shanley first you gotta ramp up to the mammoth you gotta ramp up to the mammoth uh, don't even talk to me about Albi um, and uh, you know doing that first play I remember sitting on stage the first night and, and right before the lights came up I just remember thinking to myself you gotta move to New York and I knew nothing I knew right. nothing I didn't know about agents or managers or casting directors. I didn't know anything. I just knew De Niro, Pacino, Duvall were in New York. <laughs> right. That makes sense. You know? I mean, that's, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, I went to college for acting. Did you do it as a because, kid? Because, what's that? Did you do it as a kid? 
Acting, yeah. I started acting in in school plays in in junior high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, eighth grade. There was an eighth grade play. It was uh, don't don't drink the water. <laughs> How racist? Oh, no, no. I'm sorry. That was uh, that was freshman year. It was uh, it was uh, shit. <laughs> if, if, if you were so doing, old. what was "Don't Drink the Water" about? "Don't Drink the Water" was a, a Woody Allen play. Oh. I only remember the only thing I remember about it was uh, my character gets hit in the head and thinks he's the Wright brothers, and like <laughs> talks to himself as the two Wright brothers. But the one I did in eighth grade was the Butler did it. That's ah. what it was. And I was Chandler Marlowe, the detective. Oh, all right. Who who gets you know? It's, it was very slapsticky. I got my foot stuck in a bucket and all that. Yeah, you so got that's, your noises off adventure. Yeah, and that and I was, you know, I was a loser nerd kid. Didn't have a lot of friends, and was just sort of encouraged by a teacher when I was in eighth grade to take her little drama class. So yep. I did, and I had fun writing sketches and stuff. And then she asked me to do this show, and I did the show. And uh, and a bunch of my classmates came in. One of one of my classmates said to me after the show, he said, "Hey man, you found your calling." And I was like, "Oh, wow, uh, yeah, it had that's to feel, cool. feel kind of awesome, right? Especially if you say you felt like a bit of a an outsider." Did you feel? Yeah, yeah. I, I I did feel accepted. I mean, I I think I think that was, you know, led to a rude awakening in a certain way because in my small tiny ass town, I was accepted as this thing. Right. Right. You know, as soon as I tried it, they're like, "Yeah, I, you're good at that. You good? Yeah. You know." And, and I kept doing it and doing it, and then you know you get into the real world and nobody wants you around. They don't. <laughs> I don't want to. I know. That's a particularly bleak outlook, Todd. You have uh, children and a wife and and a successful career. I don't know. If that's, I don't know if that's empirically true. Ten, it was tenacity, all tenacity, <laughs> just hard work, grit, and talent. But but no, it's true because you you once you're once you get into the pool where everybody's like trying to be a professional actor, it's a different deal. Yeah, and it's, you sort of have to. I felt like I had to prove myself all over again, and it was hard to figure out where I was supposed to prove myself. You know, because uh, so, they, they don't just give you auditions. You got you gotta you gotta find them. So, what did your uh, your what which, what's the small town you're from? Uh, Sherborne, Massachusetts. Your folks do what for a living? My dad back then was, I mean, they're retired now. Uh, my dad was an IBMer for a long time uh, until he was forced into early retirement um, mm. and, and became a computer consultant for a bank for his remaining uh, working years. And my mom was, I mean, when I was a kid, she was a stay-at-home mom, but she was actually uh, uh, both, uh, she was a surgical nurse and a psychiatric nurse uh, and then had kids and was a mom. And then once the kids were old enough, she wanted to go back to work. She, uh, you know, got her nursing license, you know, renewed and took the classes to update herself for being a surgical nurse. She walked into surgery and realized that she no longer could stand the sight of blood. Wow. And did an about face and became a, uh, a, a an accountant. She was became- your mom she's sounds really, amazing. She's really smart. Yeah, she's a super smart lady. I got hit in the head when I was a kid, so I think I got cheated out of the intelligence that my siblings have. Yeah, your, your downplaying of your obvious intelligence is insulting to the rest of us, Todd. So. <laughs> oh, thanks, in, in some way, In some way, your self-deprecating humor has become an insult and an assault to the rest of us. 
<laughs> How dare you? <laughs> so, I apologize. If it's possible for me to virtue shame you, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have brothers, sisters? Uh, yeah, I'm the eldest of three. Uh, my sister's the middle kid, and then my brother is uh, the young one. We're all basically two years apart. Okay, so like a four-year difference between top to bottom. Yeah, and yeah. my brother was, you know, he was the certifiable genius of the family, I guess. You know, he got a, got a free ride at NYU Law School because he got some ludicrously high score on the LSAT. And, ah. you know, now he's a public defender in D.C. Uh, fighting well, the good fight. He's so. a public defender in D.C. and he's the smart one? Well, yeah, it, it, <laughs> no, I'm well, he's, he's a, he's a passionate activist, uh, and, uh, that's why he became a public defender. It was actually, it's part of the deal with his free ride. Oh, he got right. law school for free, but he had to do two years of public service, you know, cause it, yeah. I guess it's hard to find public defenders, but my brother is it politically leans in a certain direction, right? Uh, and he wanted to be a public defender because it's right. specifically uh, focusing on young people. Now he had a he had trouble in the courts in D.C. because the judges all hated him. Mm. So he started to feel like as a trial lawyer he was doing a disservice to his client. So he's moved into the appellate courts. Um, but most recently, one of the things he did was he got uh, a, a, a bunch of people out of jail. Oh, uh, well, good for because him. Of, because of COVID and all that good stuff. Good for him. So, I mean, yeah, unless they were horrific people that are going to go, you know, unless no, they're recidivists. No, no, <laughs> he got I, a I bunch of recidivists out of jail. I don't think, yeah, it's not like that. But yeah, he, uh, yeah. So <laughs> let me ask you a question. What, what do you think, having a brother that's that close to the system, has there been, has that had an effect on your view of the penal system? Have you grown up? Uh, were there things you thought as a kid that you've, you know, kind of had the cover taken off of? Like, what have you learned from him that you would not have known as a teenager? Um, well, a lot. I mean, I think I think there's a lot that I didn't understand about the world as a teenager because my town was very small and very yeah. isolated and it's very white and very wealthy. Yeah. So there was a lot of just things that I wasn't aware of. You know, um, and and I got more aware as soon as I moved to New York. Obviously, that that that'll that'll wake you up to a lot of realities. Yep. Um, and and then my brother becoming a public defender and his his wife as well um, made me very aware of the the racism in the system, and that's sort of what they are you know about pushing uh, against. So you know. do you find yourself uh, on Facebook with people from your town at odds frequently or, or do you think your town is generally – does your town generally lean the way you lean or is your town have a different view than your view overall? I mean obviously you can't generalize an entire town. Right. But, but would you say that you come from a place that is similar to your values or do you come from a place that's different than your values? Um, I would say – Overall, Sherburne was not did I did not share all the same values as the town uh, in general. But that's not to say it's it's like now I live in Simi Valley. It's like right. It's 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 the same thing. Yes, yeah. it, 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 there's a predominance of 
Republicans and conservatives and, you know, fucking Blue Lives Matter flags right. and Betsy Ross flags. And I'm right. constantly shaking my head in this town. And people with their trucks and their giant American flags flying off the Like, yeah. okay, long lines, long social distancing lines outside of Greta's guns down the street. <laughs> right, you know, all, right. All that right. stuff is, is right. like, ah, okay. But then there's all these people, and maybe we're the minority, but it's a it's a large minority who, who think more like me. Yeah. Um, and, and that's definitely in my town growing up you know I was sort of an outsider and sort of fell into groups of those kind of like-minded people so right um, do, do you ever wonder if you are guilty of what you think they are guilty of what do you mean do you ever wonder if you know how uh, I'm certainly uh, prone to say that they're drinking the Kool-Aid of the QAnon Kool-Aid, right? Uh-huh. Do you ever think that we're doing that and we're unable to see it the way they're unable to see it? You know... Or do you question that, is a better I, way to ask? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I, f- I, I have that question. I mean, like, I sometimes I try to imagine what it's like to see or talk to me on Facebook if you're the dad of my friend who was on the football team and I right. used to drink underage in your basement and, and now, you know, I'm a screaming progressive, liberal, whatever, communist, right. <laughs> whatever, whatever right. it is. Right, right. Libtard, I, I try to snowflake. imagine that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I try to imagine that. And then I'm like, no, he's just being an asshole. I'm right. <laughs> going to tell him so. Yeah, because, you know, I, when you give that example, it makes me think, you know, you did do that, right? You did drink in somebody's basement and he probably knew you were down there. And as long as you were having your drinks with his son, it was okay. And the question is, well, what if the cops came in and shot you? Because you were breaking the law. What if the cops came in and, you know, the some of these people, I'm not saying this, this is true of the guy you're mentioning, whoever he is, but I always find it interesting, this, this justification, whenever these awful shootings happen, for example, of examining, well, what were they doing? Well, you know, just if you just follow the rules. And it always, I always wonder, well, did you always follow the rules? And if you didn't follow mm-hmm. the rules, was that the consequence? I was on a flight back from New York last night and um, there's this like 20 something blonde couple guy and a gal and they're sitting up in business class where I was and one of them is not supposed to be sitting beside the other Mm -hmm. and the the flight attendant comes over and she's like well I think that are you guys supposed to be sitting together well no but no but no but and for the next 10 minutes they're having this like they're trying to make her sound like she's crazy these two white kids Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking to myself, are you guys aware that what you're doing in a different context gets people shot? Like this, this as though any questioning of authority merits a bullet in your back. When right. so many of these people have questioned authority or have done something that's not legal. And, and they haven't had to suffer that, uh, that consequence clearly. And I wonder if that guy who had you drinking in his basement, who had you engaged in a clearly illegal act, if the cops had come, they probably would have laughed it off with him. Well, yeah, the truth, the truth is uh, with him, with, you know, these parties, there, there were uh, people of color at this guy's party sometimes. Sure. Um, and, and, and honestly, it didn't, I didn't even think about it. 
when the cops would raid one of these parties. It, it, right. it would be when the dad wasn't there. So some right. parties happened. He was in town. We were just drinking in the basement. And other times it was a giant party. Right. And when they were giant parties, a lot of times the cops would show up. Um, but in, in in my situation, I worked for the cops when these things happened. So uh, they knew me. And then it would be like... Uh, Hey guys, and they're like, "All right, Todd, come on, you got to get everybody out." All right, guys, all right. You what know, were you it, doing for the cops? I I worked as. Were you a I narc? Worked, were you were you like Twenty One Jump Street? <laughs> no, nothing that cool. No, I was a guy who uh, I was a security guard at the local pond. There was like a really nice pond in Sherburn called Farm Pond, clear water, just unbelievable, um, and a nice little beach. But it was only uh, open to uh, um, residents of the town. And you had to pay like an annual thing and get a sticker for your car. And then they uh, would allow a certain amount of -of out-of-town people to come in. And they could buy a sticker for more uh, more money. But a lot of times people from neighboring towns would sneak in with a friend sticker, just like scotch taped to the window. Right. So they could, you know, reuse it. And then you'd... You'd bust them. Right, uh, right, And right. then if that happened, because this is a small town. I mean, these cops didn't have shit to do, man. Yeah. So, listen, so, listen. One second they're sneaking into the park. The next second, a drug trade. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a, so gate, a ga- all, gateway, gateway crime. Yeah, they, were, <laughs> they were always happy to get a call from me if I was having problems with somebody not leaving because they had a phony sticker. Right. I actually had a guy, I had a guy attack me. Uh, because he was mad that I was telling him he had to go. I want to be at this pond! (laughs) Stop repressing me, you guy, you! (laughs) What else am I going to do? I'm in Sherbourne! (laughs) Yeah, but that's the thing. He he was from Dover next door. He wasn't allowed. He wasn't allowed. And I only know now, I only knew that he was in Dover after the fact because I wound up having to go to court because he got in trouble for assaulting right. an officer. <laughs> so, so look, your 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 uh, your instincts were correct. Yeah, Keep this I guy out of so. here. He's a bad influence. <laughs> so, so when when they came to those parties and I was there, you know, it would break up pretty easily, and they just confiscate all the beer, probably take it home and get drunk themselves after yeah. their shift. Um, but you know, it's funny. It never crossed my mind, but I'll bet the people of color who were there would get fucking nervous. And yeah, they, it, when I think about it, they were usually like the last ones out of the house. Right. Yeah. There's, there is a, you know, the more that I see what, what happens, you know, in this country and uh, social media certainly helps or hurts, however you want to look at it. Empathy kind of becomes the ball game, right? Because no matter how frequently I can talk about the thing that happens to me, unless you are interested, willing, or trying to put yourself, actually put yourself in my shoes, on some level, you're just going to process it through your experience and say, well, I don't see the big deal. Just do this. Because as a man, I remember years ago, it, you know, I wasn't, I hate to use the word woke because now it just sounds like such a shitty term, but I certainly wasn't hip. To, that happens with all the terms. Like woke yeah. was okay for a while, and then it yeah. became shitty because too many people adopted it as their own. You know, it's like Karen. Yeah, like Karen was, it, and now it's like, what does that even mean? Like, yeah, now the, you just now call the use, anyone a Karen. Now the use like. of it becomes problematic, right? Because 
these things become zeitgeist so quickly. And then it's like, well, now this has become its own uh, sort of compartmentalizing a bubble, right? Where now you're a Karen and therefore this is true for you now. And now we can call everybody a Karen who's guilty of the slightest this or the slightest that. And then it just loses all meaning. Right. right? It's exactly. like, it's, it's somehow linked to cancel culture, but I'm not clever enough to make the linkage right now. Um, but, you know, when I think about, you know, women always talked about how they'd walk down the street in New York and they get catcalled, right? And, or, or wherever. Like, you don't need to be in New York. You can be anywhere and have catcalls or have guys making sounds or honking and all this kind of stuff. And when I was younger, I remember thinking, I don't know what she's complaining about. I'd love it if women did that to me. Right. Yeah. Which is I a, had that same reaction when I was a kid. I was when like, you're a kid, oh, I wish I got attention. <laughs> because you have in no way, shape, or form attempted to put yourself into their truth. No. Right. Like their truth, and I don't I can't speak for, and I and I don't mean to do a disservice by attempting to, but from women I've spoken to and just sort of looking at the logic of it, they they occupy a completely different reality being in that body, being in that physicality than I occupy. And I think that I would find that or certainly could find that incredibly threatening, incredibly frustrating to have somebody make these presumptions about me uh, and not just make these presumptions, but the threat that they could follow through, right? I could stand outside of it and say, oh, that's not going to happen. But you don't know that's not going to happen in the same way that I don't know it's not going to happen when a cop comes around. Right. You know, I remember in in college, uh, a buddy of mine, we're walking through a parking lot and he was doing something and there was a, a uniformed uh, patrol person there. And I was like, hey man, don't do that. And he's like, man, that's a fucking rent-a-cop, who cares? He was a white male. He had the freedom of knowing there's not really gonna be a consequence. And I didn't have that freedom. You know, I don't have the trust, the institutional trust that it's right. all gonna work out because I don't have a history of seeing that work out for guys who look like me. Right. And I think if you're a white male, you may not know that or feel that. It's just true. And I think that's the hardest thing right now to get across is, you know, you see these guys are like, yeah, I understand. I get it. I get it. And I'm like, you don't get it, nor have you made the attempt to get it because getting it is hard. Yeah. So you're, if, if I think, and I do the same thing just from the standpoint of white males, I always think if I were a white male, would I want to engage in this? If I was a white male, how would I feel hearing these things? How would I feel having some accusation placed? How would I feel hearing the terms white privilege and, and white supremacy? Yeah, and a lot of people make the leap too when when they hear, uh, you know, white privilege. They make this leap like, oh, so you think my life's not hard? Right, right. You know? Right, They and I, and I think the mistake is if you have... Uh, spina bifida and a black person has spina bifida, right? Like your life is hard if you have spina bifida and the black person's life is just as hard as your spina bifida, but with an added layer of shit. They're carrying a backpack of rocks on top of your spina bifida. Right. So it's like white privilege doesn't mean that every step of your way was ease. White privilege means that every step of your way was a little bit easier to a lot easier than women, uh, white women, black women, and black men. Mm-hmm. You know, because as a white male, you're the only entity in the history of our country to have not been legally prevented from doing something. 
That's true. You're the only entity that was never told that you can't vote or you can't be in this place. You're the only entity. So if you're that only entity, then of course that's going to create some privilege. That's going to give you a chance to progress where others didn't have that same chance. That's what white privilege is. White privilege isn't you're a bigot. White privilege is this system and this society for 300 years has not presented any obstacles for you that are unusual relative to every other demographic. Right. And, and I imagine, you know, I have a lot of white friends. My best friend is a white guy and to their credit. And I think, you know, I'm going to give credit where credit is due for those that are willing to sit back and ask themselves the questions in the same way that I've had to be willing to sit back and say, I'm in a misogynist society a misogynistic society. Do I walk around thinking I'm a misogynist? I don't think so, but there's no doubt that in some way, shape, or form, I've behaved in ways that are commensurate with that misogyny. There's no doubt. So I have to be open to the fact that, oh, there might be ways that I'm speaking in meetings. What are the things that I'm doing that I don't feel like are wrong, but the reason I don't think they're wrong is because society has promoted my maleness. Right. And I feel like if everybody was willing to ask themselves that question, you know? It's hard to get there because you feel like you're on blast and you have someone like me calling you out on Facebook and so then you just (laughs) get angry. (laughs) And and I get it, I'm angry too, bro. Um, But I would love it, I would love for people to find some moment of repose or some moment of calm and just ask themselves, right? Like, is it true what these people are saying? Like. What have I seen that reflects that? Am I angry? Do I feel insecure? Why do I feel insecure? Is there some truth to this stuff? And yeah. I would love it uh, if we could get on board with that sort of discourse. And I do feel like social media makes that much harder. Yeah, I, I, I think it does. I mean, with our generation too, there's this, like especially when you talk about the misogyny, Yes. Inherent in our society and our generation and also, uh, you know, the assumptions about, uh, you know, neighborhoods, yep. uh, people of color all clustered together in a certain neighborhood. Those right. assumptions that happened, it, it, you know, it didn't help because, <laughs> I mean, obviously you gravitated towards these great movies in the 70s, but the movies of the 80s didn't help anyone towards a, a woke, <laughs> a woke uh, situation. You remember Robocop? You know, you get, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In RoboCop, <laughs> there's a black character. And I'm telling you, if you go back and rewatch RoboCop, 90% of what happens when he opens his mouth is hysterical laughter. Oh, yeah, 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 that guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, he gets out of a car. <laughs> and I'm like, what's he laughing at? <laughs> <laughs> he was tweaking, I guess. Hey, I don't wait, know. You know what? Right, and there was no like, there was no real indication of anybody doing any drugs or. Anybody. But this guy's contribution, and I feel for that actor. I'm like, this guy got this big break in this movie, and yeah. he probably got that script and cried. You know, right. this guy might be a brilliant. Who knows? Maybe he's bad too. Who knows? I'm not trying to make all everybody amazing, but. I watched that. You rewatched that. When I watched it in the 80s, I didn't even have a, a second thought about it. Sort of to your point. Yeah. It was so ingrained. 
You know? Yeah, well, and it's like you look at a movie like Death Wish, you know? Yes. Uh, and even though the, the initial rapists are a, a cross-section of races, right. of races, the the movie's just ultimately about shooting street people, That's as right. They, as That's right. they were called. The, the and, then, and then in the misogyny, you know, you have comedies that are predicated entirely on sex crimes, like Revenge of the Nerds yep. and Porky's. Sixteen and like Candles. All, yeah, Sixteen Candles, yeah, even. It's like, it, it, you don't, when you hear, it's disgusting when I get catcalls on the street, you know, in that realm and you've been fed that information right that your immediate reaction is well i'd love that man exactly i love a hypersexual environment of a world let's do this yeah you know, that's what's in the movies if you're a serious female actress i mean not that it's much better now but it's getting better if you were a serious female actress in the 70s or 80s and you're in your 30s how many movies a year had a role for you oh i know you know i mean there were going to be five good movies a year Five, right? Call right. it ten for the hell of it. Ten sure. that were worth mention. They were going to be, but if they're ten movies, there are twenty-five big parts in those movies. Twenty of those were going to be men, and the mm-hmm. five that were women were going to be there to support the man. Yeah, I mean, how? And if you're a black woman, forget it. You're mm-hmm. definitely in. Maybe you're in best friend category. Maybe you're helping maybe. somebody. You're definitely helping yeah. out. Yeah. Um, and, and that was, that's what you and I were raised watching, you know, we yeah. were raised watching men pursue women with no regard for whether the women wanted them or not. And that was <laughs> right. seen as a positive thing, right? Like your striving meant that she was supposed to, well, he really liked, like we basically made it. So your opinion doesn't matter if I want you. Right. And, and that's what you and I grew up watching, right? The say yeah. anythings, the any of these, you know, the striving Tom Cruise of the fact that my will, my will will determine what happens here. And then she's just happy to be had. And that stuff is so <laughs> damaging and dangerous and flawed, you yeah. know? And I think you have to be willing to look at that and recognize where your influences came from, the ways that, the lessons that that taught you that, were wrong or incorrect or that were one-sided, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's imperative now that we start hearing different voices. I think it's imperative that women and women of color uh, get behind the camera. I think it's imperative that their stories uh, get out there. And, you know, I hear some complaints by white male actors who are like, I can't even get hired anymore. And I'm like, that's not true, A. (laughs) Yeah, that's not true. B, maybe you're not getting hired as much as you were 10 years ago proportionally, but 10 years ago you were being overhired proportionally. So things are slowly creeping towards a proportionality. So yeah, you're going to feel like you have less, fewer auditions, but by no means do you have proportionally fewer auditions. It's yeah, just, I don't know. You know. For me too, I'm you know pushing fifty. So I don't know where if that has how much that has to do with fewer auditions yeah. than when I was younger. Um, and I have heard those grumbles uh, 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 in 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 waiting rooms from yeah. white dudes. Sure, um, and and that is part of me privilege. understands it because yeah. you, know, you know sure in. It, you're in a commercial waiting room, you know, we're all in the same scale ass boat. Yep. You know what I mean? So I, I think some guys feel like, why is it always put on the working class, this 
equitability thing. Right. Why is it? Why is it always the working class that has to put up with it? So it, it's it, you know I can understand their reaction. <laughs> I don't agree with it. Yeah. I no. also like it's this, this whole business is such a fucking crapshoot. You know if I'm if if now I have either more competition because a lot of roles I go out now it's like ethnicity is not a thing all right. ethnicities it says right. you know so I'm, I'm just with actors it's all fine whoever's yeah it was always a crapshoot um, if anything has happened in the past few years you know instead of you being up for 10 jobs you know instead of 10 jobs now you're up for 8 which is probably closer to what you represent in this country but at the same time to your point I get it you know I get having that discussion I get it I have no problem with anybody's frustration in a moment I have it you have it I just feel like perspective is what we are losing I, and I, I agree feel with like, you. you know perspective is what the critical thinker tries to find I have my emotional reaction look when I've looked at breakdowns in the past couple of years every part that I was going in for seems to be going to a Latinx female now, uh-huh. is that true? I don't know. But, you know, the DEA agents are becoming more Latinx female. And there's a part of me that's like, fine. Fine. Like, there's no such thing as you taking the job that I was supposed to get. And I, I agree. But people, know? when people are having a hard time, um, and, and this gets used, uh, obviously, politically all the time. But when people are having a hard time, they look for uh, something to blame. Yes. You know, because it's like you said earlier, it's, you know, I have a, I have a bad year this year when I had a great year the year before and I really haven't changed anything. I'm doing the same damn thing. So what, now I need somebody to blame for this because it can't possibly, I have to be the victim. I have to be the victim. And I think that's the most important, you know, I taught at NYU for a while uh, over at Stone Street, which is their film and television department. And one of the things that I tried to impart to my students as much as anything was be responsible for your career. And what that means is you're going into a wildly unfair career. You need to know that from the get-go. So five years from now when you're waiting tables and it hasn't hit, that doesn't mean that it's because your agent isn't getting you out and it doesn't mean because the business doesn't like you. It's because you're in a ridiculously bad business. This is not a good business to go into to make money. And it is wildly unfair. So you kind of have to accept going in. It's wildly unfair. And then you have to set your boundaries, right? Like, what are you willing to do and not do? Um, Right. And to your point, everybody wants to be the hero of their narrative and everybody wants to be the martyr of their narrative. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've had to find the balance between there are parts I'm not going in for because I'm a black male and hey, you've done really well for an actor, right? Both those things are probably true. And ultimately, all that comes under the umbrella of, if I don't want to do it, I shouldn't be doing it. Right. I've never you been- You have a, to remind yourself. You have to remind that. yourself that this is your choice. You know, I've never liked these pay-ins online that are like, it's hard being an actor. And I'm like, well, then don't fucking do it. Like yeah. nobody, if, if you were under the impression that this was easy and fun all the time, then that's on you as you become an adult, right? Maybe you think that at 21. But by the time you're 30, if you're complaining about the business openly to others, then you have to make some moves. You should be doing something else. And in, in relation to the, the, the equity and casting thing, I mean, the, the way I look at, looked at it, too, was 
it, it's it's just another paradigm shift. Like every couple of years, there's some crazy friggin' thing. Now it's a goddamn pandemic, right? But there's some crazy thing that that affects the business, and like that that one was one I was like, this is a this this is ultimately a positive thing and something right. that I've called for and something that I like. So if you know if it is putting me out, which it probably isn't, because like I say, I think yeah. it's all goddamn crapshoot. Right? Uh, who cares? It's it's it'll it'll all shake out in the wash. It'll all shake out in the other. wash, and uh, and I do feel like the more I just and look, I was raised on Air Force bases and on Air Force bases. This is kind of ironic because people think of the military as such a conservative group of people. But on Air Force bases, there's so many different ethnicities. And you, I was raised around such a melting pot. That's what I saw in the world. That's what I liked about the world. And that's what I've always felt like is actually the promise of America. I, I've always thought that our greatness was about the guy that comes here from Bolivia or the woman that comes here from Israel and that they can come here and find a job, and that they can find here and make a, come here and, fi- and make a living. I've always thought that was super cool. Um, but what's occurred to me in the past couple of years is there's another world of people that thought that America was about being white, mm-hmm. and that group is starting to that feels uh, energized uh, by uh, Trump in the White House. And I never thought that's what it was about. You know, I always thought it was about a bunch of different people coming together uh, and striving to be better at what they do and, and finding work. And that's also what New York is like, right? Like you go to New York, it's almost like there's no time. We don't have time to worry about this shit. You know, there were Mexican, yeah. Mexican guys in the kitchen and uh, Argentinian guys working at the bar and and people from West Indies people and everybody was all around, you know, German kids, Italian, everybody. And it was just like, you're working a shift tonight. I'm working a shift tonight. Let's go get drinks. Right. So uh, we're probably winding, winding up here. Um, overall, how do you feel about, I mean, we, we don't have time to get into this, but we just saw the pick was Kamala for VP. Mm. Um, it's going to lead to its own shit show on, on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's but already, it's, it's already, already started, happening. which was, it's, which is going to happen. That's going to happen. It, it doesn't, of, doesn't matter. It, whoever got picked, whoever got been, picked was going to happen yeah. by and large. I feel like, She's super smart. She's definitely qualified. This is for bigger stakes than we've ever had in the world. Uh, you know, we got to get that guy out. Um, so yeah, I totally I'm agree. I, I, I'm, I, the, for me personally, the VP pick had no weight, no bearing on how I'm going to vote. Right. Uh, if it does does have a positive effect, great. I'm, right. I hope it doesn't have a negative effect. But right. for me personally, it's 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 an obvious thing. I would never not vote for Joe <laughs> right. Biden because I don't ever want to be counted as the guy, as one of the people who pissed democracy away. Yeah. Because uh, I, I, agree. I I was too uh, privileged to see uh, you know the the forest uh, for the yeah, trees. I, I was doing a little bit too much navel gazing. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and 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 I do feel like we have. Like it is not just conservatives. Unfortunately, I just like our yeah. political landscape is tripped in this completely sycophantic way of voting people. And yeah, you know, it's like 
Kamala Harris, get her on a fucking debate stage with Mike Pence. Yeah. I'm going to be happy watching that. I'm going yeah. to be happy watching that. So yeah. so yeah. Th- that's a win for me. It didn't matter who got the VP, VP pick. Yeah. Other people would have been fine, too. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's neither here nor there. Where Mike- I'm, I, I'm, I just hate Nazis, Joe. I yeah. just don't like Nazis. <laughs> you know, and that's where you and I can bond, and that's where we can... <laughs> we, yeah, my only... The last thing I'll say about uh, sort of the everybody's sort of gleeful about Kamala and Pence is I'm my only concern is the expectations game because Uh Pence cannot lose the expectations game and it's going to be hard for Kamala to everybody's expecting a knockout punch. Yeah. And that, so we have to be careful about that. You you might be right. We're 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 holding her, we're putting her on a pedestal that we should, we're creating our own problem with the expectations game. Because yeah, I get you. I you know, get you. she would have to come out and knock him out in a minute, and she's not going to, and that's not going to happen. And you know, they have de- debate prep too. So, I'm yeah. I'm thrilled with the decision. Uh, we have to go. But out there she and is win. good. She is, as we've witnessed, she's good at going after people. She's oh, good at. She's an attorney. She's good at poking. She, she's yeah, good. Well, she's at, an so, attorney general. She's smart. Yeah. She's yeah. smart. She can craft an argument, and she can take yours apart. And and. And she doesn't mind the spotlight. So those things are all positive. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I just feel like let's let's take care of this business and make history and get rid of this cancer and, and start healing. Yeah. Just mail in your votes real fucking early. <laughs> mail in your votes tomorrow if you can. <laughs> if you can. I, because I the would. post office is going to stop working in October. The post office <laughs> is going, you know, he's going to he's going to the post office is going to stop working in October. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. I wish we could vote now. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. Uh, I'd do it. So, uh, well, look, man, is, are we, do, we, do we just keep, do we keep rocking and rolling? I'm, I'm down to keep rocking and rolling. Uh, we could talk for a few more minutes, uh, but I do have to get off soon. Um, so, what do you think is going to happen in the next six months with our business? You know, I really don't know because it, 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 it's... You know, I, I've I've been getting some some self tape yeah. auditions as I as as I know you have uh, a couple here and there, not not couple not, here and there. Yeah. I I actually had two commercial callbacks via Zoom. Nice, which is not something I ever would have considered. Right. <laughs> it's just interesting to have my wife holding my phone and me talking to a director. Oh, God. I liked it because I didn't have to drive anywhere. Right. Um, what for one of them, I got the full audition experience, hour fifteen minutes in the waiting room before wow. I, I got my shot. <laughs> <That's> so ridiculous. <laughs> so even now. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, and and the, and I don't know what these mean. I mean, like I've I've had a couple self tapes for stuff that would shoot in Vancouver. Yep. Uh, stuff that would shoot in Atlanta. So, and I don't, you know, the idea, uh, I know that you're a traveler, a bi-coastal person, but the idea yeah. of getting on a plane for me right now is kind of terrifying. Right. But I, I got to work, so yeah. I will, yeah. absolutely. But, it, like, it'll be interesting to see the world from that perspective and how they run a set, you know, yeah. social distancing. I know, I know that they're hiring for way too little money. Uh, it, 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 like PAs, fifteen bucks an hour, whose only job is to walk around a set and tell people to keep their masks on, or <laughs> separate. You know, I feel it's safer like, already. Yeah, it's like a little a little set cop, but I also feel like fifteen bucks is kind of an insulting. 
I mean, you're asking someone to come into a, an environment where they're putting themselves at risk yeah. uh, of getting a virus, and then their job is to get in people's faces about not yeah. taking risks. Yeah. And and I feel like it should at least be $30 an hour. Yeah, it, it yeah just, well, you're spending hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars on this thing, right? Like, that occupation, that person who's going to be on set for 12 hours a day, you know, they should be making $500. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, for that, I, for that I day, you know, so it, it, it all kind of, I have no idea which direction it's going to go in. I, I uh, directed a couple of uh, what they're called micro movies for NYU in the past few weeks and directing two students from Zoom who are also in two different places is awful. Yeah. Uh, I credit the students that I worked with. They're... There's a part of it, you know, you want to create, and I, I really enjoy directing, and I really love teaching. Doing it that way is all, there's no element of it that feels like you got what you wanted, because they have to take a photo of their position, send me the photo, I look at the point of view of the camera they're setting up, then they set it up on some tripod or books. Like, it's just no element of it feels like, great, we got it. Every element of it is like, we're running out of time, go to the next location, <laughs> you know? And it's it's really a hard time to, it's not a hard time to be creative, it's a hard time for me to feel fulfilled through creativity. Yeah, well, um, I've been doing a lot of writing. I self-published a book. Oh, right, I saw that. Uh, called the Headache Man, and I and I just finished the first draft. I, I wrote the rough draft longhand. Wow! It, it's been so long since I've written that way, and I just wanted to see how it felt. It's been a long time since I've written a screenplay, you know, a feature screenplay too. So I thought I'd just try it that way and see how it felt. But now I've got the first draft in the computer. It's a total B movie, yeah. you know. And I don't know how you produce a B movie. And I and I probably like even though this has sort of been gestating in my head for a couple years, I probably wouldn't have written it if there wasn't a fucking pandemic and I wasn't feeling right. like I'm kind of spinning my wheels. I got to do something. Yeah, I got to well, do something. Well, I think that's great, you know. And who knows how to produce anything? But you have this. You have the screenplay. You find six people and you read the screenplay. And then those six people are like, oh, this is cool. Or don't ever, ever make us come to your house again. <laughs> and and then at the well, six I'll have to have to do it on Zoom. Yeah. Uh, uh, like so, a Zoom uh, you know, screenplay. You know, but then read. two of them are like, oh, this is cool. And look, you and I are at the position right now where if we really, really wanted to get something done and we could get four or five of our friends on board... People want to make things, you know? Yeah, that's true. If we really wanted to put together a 90-minute film and and it was, you know, and we're all smart enough to know about locations, we're all smart enough to know about trying to keep this thing inexpensive, we wouldn't have a problem casting it ourselves. Right. You know, we would have, we'd find a DP that's down to do it because right now we have professional skill sets to storyboard, to shot list, to, to manage craft, to find those, to everybody going in and making sure they're on the same movie with, here's what this is going to be. It's going to be a three-week shoot. We're going to be working these 12-hour days. We're going to, you know, go through whatever SAG signatory we need to, we're going to do all that stuff. I do believe that, and I'm saying this to you as much as I'm saying this to me, mm -hmm. you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, you and I have seen, <laughs> just go to Netflix tonight and you'll find 10 movies 
I know, I know, far but Joe, that's worse the, than anything th- that's, you could ever come up with. I know, but that's the weird thing. Like you, 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 like Mel Gibson in in a in a movie about a, a heist that takes place during a hurricane where he's right. got to shoot a lot of brown skinned people. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> what a great idea for now. <laughs> Where I just by the way, what, did the what people a, what who a, drop what, the coin for that are they will they meet with me and consider my no, version of that? And you're not looking for them. <laughs> no, but who who is the where? Well, you you're never going to know until you do the reading. You're not going to yeah. know where the money's coming from until you start. That's a good point. Right? Yeah. Because how many times have we heard about or been involved with this thing that had all these people behind it never got made. Right. This whole town is filled with people that have optioned everything. Everybody's got a screenplay in their back pocket that somebody's interested in doing. And you and I know that 99% of those never come to fruition. Right. So the ones that come to fruition are, what's that saying about um, how can you have faith in a small band of people getting anything done. It's something like, you know, how can you have faith in a small group of people can accomplish anything because that's the only thing that ever has. It's some, it's some quote right, like that right. about, uh, you know, nobody knows where the money's coming from and there's tons of big money going into stupid things. And every year we see three or four projects that were like, man, how'd they get that done? It couldn't have cost right. more than $200,000. Right. And, I'm telling you right now, if you come up with a screenplay and there's stuff for us to do in it, we will put a reading together. And after that reading, we will say, can we make this thing any better? And after that, we'll see where it goes. Right, right. Why yeah, not? that's true. Yeah, sure. You know, there's no reason not to. Because I'll tell you, teaching 21-year-olds, they have a level of moxie and they have a level of fearlessness or stupidity, whichever one it is. Maybe it's naivete. Um, that's kind of lovely to witness. They're just doing shit and they're filming right. stuff and they, they're using this technology. And, you know, if you do 10 of those, something's going to seep through. But I know, I'll speak for myself, I don't want to condemn you with my cobwebs. I have a tendency of, well, this isn't going to be that good, so I'm just not going to put a whole lot of, you know. Oh, oh I mean, yeah, yeah. You know? No, it's, for me, it's, it's what, it's not. This isn't going to be that good for me. Although so often I think things are good and I'm told they're not not good um, that right. I make. But, uh, <laughs> but that's because nobody knows shit but you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes you got to fail. Uh, but check. I, I, it's just it's it's the daunting element of you know in order to make the thing that's in my head, it's going to cost a, a millions of dollars. So that's the daunting thing. Right. Like what, 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 the, that feels like a like a, a wall, and I can't quite see where the wall is, sure. or how to get around it, or over it, and get right. through it to get right. on the inside of that. I don't know because people. You're right. People are making these movies all the time, you know. But like, who? How do you get in on that loop? I think uh, being a critical thinker does not work to your advantage in that loop. I no. think. I think you have to. You have to think that your idea is amazing and you have to talk to people as though your idea is amazing and then get around other people that think that, you know, because I think that we're self-analyzers and that's part of the reason I think we're probably good at what we do and it's probably part of the reason that we've had, you know, 20 plus year careers, I think, because we are fairly cerebral cats and that works to our advantage in some way. 
And then in other ways, it doesn't work to our advantage. Mm. You know, so I do think that's a trade-off where, you know, if I had hit in my 20s, I think it would have been ruinous for me. You think you would have got, got like, been too much of a, a like, party hound, enjoying the fame, going to the, the big parties? I don't know that I would have been, I don't know if a party hound would have been my issue. I think that my, uh, well, maybe. I don't think the draw would be the party, but I think the the effect of drinking as much as I was drinking in my 20s <laughs> and my desire and my, my, my tendency to be abrasive and blunt. Uh-huh. <laughs> that would have been, I would have been blacklisted by 30. <laughs> <laughs> like, no doubt. That Joe Holt is difficult. <laughs> that guy's such an asshole when he gets drunk <laughs> and he's drunk all the time. Uh, you know, so I, 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 you know, this thing came along right at the right time for me and who knows where it goes who knows where anything goes but uh this has certainly been like the biggest thing that i've had happen from the legit side and and a part that i like and and i do you know when the the we're gonna air on october 4th october 4th after the finale of the walking dead our first episode will air october 4th Oh, cool and then uh hopefully we'll get back to set in january for season two uh that's the that's the hope and uh I'm looking forward to the show coming out. I've never really been part of something like that, so that's pretty uh, awesome. Yeah, you know, we shall see. I I would love to be on a zombie show someday. I did I did one short film called Dog Catchers uh, with uh, Rusty Schwimmer. Uh, that no was relation. About, no, it was about <laughs> no it was about uh, a zombie in a backyard. It's like the dog catchers after the zombie apocalypse oh. that they kind of gravitated towards removing zombies from people's yards. Right. It was sort of the bit. And uh, that is the only zombie show I've ever been. But I'm such a zombie nut, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big Romero fan and all that. Well, it's, look, your guy, Jordan, directed our pilot episode. Oh, right, right. And, and that uh, was... Uh, King, King Kong going, guy. Without going too far down that road, it was quite an experience. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. Well, I can't wait to watch it. Congrats. Yeah. I think that's great. I Thank love you. that you're you're on Walking Dead. I'm going to watch it. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Um, well, well, thanks for having me uh, on your show. It's, it, been, it's it, been real nice. It was great to have you. Uh, I've always wanted to have you on my show, and I've always wanted to interview you. Uh, ever since I saw you in that Avis commercial uh, thir- 13 years ago, I thought, who is that guy and how does he do what he does? I've been capturing <laughs> these old commercials and I haven't dug that one up yet. I don't know where. I don't know if I ever had a copy of it. I'm sure uh, I didn't. But before we end the show, I, just to let the listeners know, Joe and I were in an Avis rental car commercial and it was very strange. <laughs> Because it involved the song I Want to Rock by Twisted Sister, uh, which is now even more ironic on yes. certain, in certain ways. But <laughs> Joe was playing the, guy, the rental car guy. And, and there was, was a, a woman, re- Amy Kidd. Yeah, Amy, Amy Kidd. Kid. Yeah. It was yeah. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, uh, and, and, and then I was the customer... And I can't remember if I asked about did I, I must have asked about XM radio or something like that. Yeah. But the only way you answered was by opening your mouth wide yes. and then the Twisted Sister song would come out of you. Yes. Yes, and we could not like you couldn't lip sync, you couldn't act like you were no. singing. You just stood there, opened your mouth and I want to rock would come out. <laughs> and you had and you 
I remember this. <laughs> and you had to be, you couldn't be, because when you open your mouth like that, you it's hard not to look either terrified yes. or angry. Yes. But you couldn't look, you had to look happy and helpful yes. while opening your mouth for Twisted Sister to come out of. Yes, which is why I got paid the big bucks. <laughs> yeah, you got you got more than scale? Yeah. Oh. yeah me, Who reps yeah, you, man? Me, me and Amy Kidd. That's how we met. And uh, since then, we've run into each other in the, in the rooms outside of auditions and uh, always... I think over the years we've sort of discovered that we had uh, more similarities than maybe we would have originally thought, and yeah, you know, for sure. And now we have a bit of a friendship, which is which is kind of cool. I like that. I like yes. that, and I want to work together again. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Anytime. Uh, I, I appreciate uh, getting a chance to interview you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man.